Welcome to That Said. I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we will be speaking with Alison Moore about her new book, I Dreamed He Talks to Me, a memoir of listening how to listen. Alison is a singer-songwriter, producer, and author who has released 10 critically acclaimed albums. She has been nominated for an Academy Award, as well as a Grammy and Country Music Awards. Allison holds a master's degree in creative writing from the New School and lives in Nashville, Tennessee. Allison, welcome to That Said. Thank you. So I'd like to begin these interviews by asking our authors to tell us something about themselves to get us started to learn who you are. Hmm. What kind of thing? Well, where did you grow up? How did you get into music? Your background a little bit. Okay. Um, I was born in Mobile, Alabama in 1972, and I spent um, the majority of my childhood in Frankville, Alabama, which is about 90 miles north of Mobile. My parents were both um, very musically inclined, and my sister and I both started singing at very young ages, like three, four years old, something like that. And um, that's that's the short version. Um, I lost my parents when I was 14. I then went to live with my aunt and uncle for the remainder of my high school years. Um, graduated high school, went to college, moved to Nashville, uh, sang, my sister had begun making records. I sang background vocals for her, then got my own record deal in 1997 and have since made 10 albums. Um, I wrote two memoirs in my 40s. And now I'm married to my third husband and live in Nashville, Tennessee. And your music has gotten you nominations for Grammys and Academy Awards and all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's great. I, I was listening just before we turned to the book. I was listening to your cover of Not Dark Yet, Dylan's song, which I thought you covered brilliantly. I loved your cover of it. And I was thinking to myself, oh, would she cover, please, trying to get to heaven before they close the door or standing in the doorway or every grain of sand? Because your voice for his type of music that he's written is just perfect, I think. Hmm. Well, we'll see. I don't know if I have any more Dylan covers in me, but you know. Well, think about it, okay? So... Tell us, if you would, about your son, John Henry, and what prompted you to write this memoir. My son, John Henry, was born in 2010. Um, his dad is the singer-songwriter, Steve Earle. We were married at that time. Um, so John Henry was born in 2010. I was 37. And... When uh, he was 23 months old, he was diagnosed with autism. Um, John Henry developed absolutely, as far as I knew, um, what would be considered normally at first. Um, I, I didn't see anything out of the ordinary. Not that I knew what to look for. I didn't have any other children, but um, I didn't see anything that looked off to me until... Um, he was about 16 months. When he was about a year old, he started to speak. He started to say words and he collected a little vocabulary. Um, 
And then uh, right around the time he started to walk, which was about 15, 16 months, he started to use those words that he had collected less, less and less. And I um, watched my um, really outgoing social baby. And when I say that, I mean that if we were on a plane, he would wave at every person that came down the aisle. Um, in his first photograph with Santa Claus, he waved at the camera. He didn't cry. Like he just was very excited to, he seemed to be excited to be in the world and he wanted to know everybody and he smiled and he would wave and say, Hey. Um, so when that started to go away, I knew that something had changed. It took me a while to find the answer. Um, because when you realize something like that is happening, it's, it's very hard to admit. And then it's very hard to say out loud. And there's so much, um, fear around a thing like autism that, you know, um, Steve, his dad and I were actually on the road when it started to happen. We were, we were touring as a family that summer and, uh, in 2011, and I started trying to figure out what was going on. So I was on the phone calling his pediatrician in New York city, um, who said, oh, you know, boys are slow with communication. And when oftentimes when they start to walk, the words will drop off or something. And it, it just, you know, nobody wanted to say, oh, this isn't a good sign. Um, in fact, I think I was the first person to say the word. Um, so it just, you know, it took a while to get there, but he was ultimately diagnosed at 23 months. And at that point had lost almost all of his language. Um, you know, and since then, he has not used words. So, and that is not the only thing, you know, there are um, behaviors that come along with autism, self-stimulatory behaviors, um, and an ability to concentrate uh, a severe ADD, even OCD comes with, I think um, John Henry has a, a good dose of OCD as well as severe ADD. Um, there are just a lot of, um, behaviors that come with autism that prevent the person who has it from learning in a, in a typical way. So trying to teach is a challenge. Um, we don't realize as people how much we learn from imitation. And although um, it is not true that people with autism don't imitate, um, you know, I've heard that before. Um, I know that not to be true. It doesn't come as easy um, from what I know. So, um, you know, that's all to say, uh, John Henry is an incredibly beautiful spirit and he has a lot of tenacity, a lot of intelligence, what he's able to do with his limited capacity for communication, what he is able to communicate just often, uh, really blows my mind. He's very smart. He's very resourceful. He, he finds a way to make his needs known. Um, I mean, I know I miss a lot of them and that's something that keeps me up at night. Um, but he's pretty creative. Um, you know, if he wants to go for a while, if he wanted to go swimming, he would go get the shoes that he wears when we go to the pool and bring those to me. So it's just, you know, life is sort of like that. We're always putting little puzzles together. So that's, right. you know, that's the short version, <laughs> which was no, very, we'll, I apologize. Right. No, no, we'll delve into some of the other aspects of living with John Henry and you living with yourself, uh, John Henry is pretty much nonverbal still. Yes. Yes. I mean, you know, I've stopped using that term and I know I use it throughout this book. 
but just since I finished I Dreamy Talks to Me, um, I've began to feel sort of weird about that term because the truth is, is John Henry isn't nonverbal. He uses his voice a lot. He makes noise, you know. I hesitate to even say non-speaking because I honestly think that sometimes he says things that we can't understand. So it isn't really a fair description. Um, and it's something that I've used a lot, but I'm beginning to think, you know, that's that's not really apt. Um, so I have just begun to say that he has um, a severe speech disability because mm. that's what it is. Right. It so, just took a while to find that language, you know, and I wrote an entire book with nonverbal all throughout it. And then went, well, you know, I might have needed to just do that so that I could learn. But that's not really what it is. Well, the one thing that's clear from the book is that you are constantly learning. One is in life constantly learning and you are constantly learning. And so this is a logical evolution in your learning and your thinking. So that's yeah. all good. Yeah. Yeah. And just being able to say, well, you know, what I said is, is not true. <laughs> you know, that's, that's, um, that I think, um, I might not have been able to do that even a couple of years ago. So that means that I'm progressing as a human being. If I can say, you know, that I was wrong about that. Um, but at the end of the day, books and records are just, they ought to be time stamped. Hmm. Fair enough. Can I ask you, why did you decide to write this book? What was in you that needed to come out in the book form? You know, I, I think this book decided that it needed to get written. I don't know that I really made the decision to write it. I was still working on my first book when I started this second book. So I was getting an MFA at the new school in New York and, uh, I was workshopping parts of blood, which is my first memoir and, uh, but was taking a nonfiction workshop and had an essay due. And I was working on something that, you know, would have been fine, whatever it was, but, um, I had an experience with John Henry that just spurred on an essay from me and it just sort of fell out and it sort of stunned me. I went, Oh my goodness. I didn't even know that was in there. Clearly, this is what I need to be writing about because the writing was um, sharp, visceral, and uh, it was hot, you know. And so I, I said, okay, I don't know how, I don't know what, I don't know when, but I think my next book is showing itself to me because I think, too, I had blood sort of figured out at that time, even though I was still playing with it structurally. And um, I knew that I would go forward on that and that I could see the end of the light at the end of the tunnel um, on that one. And so maybe it was some sort of freedom to let this this one rise up. And in no way did I start to um, focus on the second book. It just was like it showed itself. I went, okay, I have a path now. I know what's going to happen. Um, I shouldn't say that because I get shown time and time again that whatever I think is going to happen is not what's going to happen. Um, but in this particular case, that's that's what happens. So uh, it just showed itself. And I wanted to write something about the way autism 
feels to a parent. Um, when my son was diagnosed, I didn't have a me to talk to. I sure could have used me to talk to. And that's not to say I'm any kind of expert or any kind of anything other than a mama who has been there. And we, um, as parents of children with extreme needs, you know, can feel lost and isolated. So that went into it too. I wanted to write something that was not a how-to book, not a textbook, like try this diet and do this activity. And here's, you know, 37 ways you can bond with your nonverbal child. You know, I, there are enough of those out there. And I just wanted to write something that felt like something that said, you know, I've been there, I get it, and it's okay. And however you feel, it's okay. And if you don't feel like being super parent and getting the pat on the head and the gold star and be told by everybody, oh, you're amazing and I don't know how you do it. And if you don't feel like that today, turn here because I know what that feels like. I just want to go, before we turn to that, which is that's the primary theme of the book. And it relates back to my question of asking you whether your son is still nonverbal. The title of the book, I'm wondering whether you change the title of the book now too, in light of our last conversation, the title of the book is I dream. He talks to me in no, memoir of learning how to listen. No, I would never change that. First of all, my, the title is one of my favorite things about it. Um, and it's true. It's just the truth. I do dream he talks to me in a language that I can understand very easily. Um, but no, I wouldn't change it. Mm -mm. It's interesting. In the book, I dream he talks to me. You outline four dreams, which are a recurring theme in your life. The four dreams in which you and John Henry are speaking like you and I are, mm -hmm. are speaking. Mm -hmm. Is that still a part of your subconscious, I guess, the dreaming of these conversations with John Henry? You know, these are the four that I remember. I had the fourth one um, on his 10th birthday. Is that right? Yeah. Um, I haven't had one since. Now, I don't know how many I have that I don't remember. Could be a lot. I think we have plenty of dreams we don't remember. These are just the ones I recall. In the dreams, you're sort of surprised a bit of his talking to you, and he sort of seems to be saying, this is when I've chosen to talk. I make my own decisions, and I could have always talked if I wanted to, but now I'm talking to you because I want to. Yeah, which is, you know, I wonder about that. Um I do. I don't know what that is. It's yeah. such a mystery. I just, you know, the times that it has happened, it has been such a relief to me. I've, uh, I've learned things from him. I think that we have 
at least a very slight form of telepathy. I think a lot of familial relationships involve telepathy. Um, part of that is knowledge, but part of that is, uh, is bond. And I think because we have not had the gift of words. Um, and I realize, you know, I've had to learn so much about communication and how much of it is actually nonverbal. Um, how much communicating we do without words too. You know, I'll, I'll never forget a pediatrician saying to me when I told her that John Henry was nonverbal. She said, I see nonverbal people all day long. I, I, I have babies for patients. <laughs> I thought, wow, that's, that's true. You know? And I think, you know, a good point to make about that is, you know, sometimes with autism, it can feel like you haven't necessarily progressed past that stage when you didn't yet have words with, with your child, you know, um, there, um, in the communication part of your relationship, you still are looking for clues all the time, you know, because you don't have words to rely on. So um, anyway, it's such a relief to hear his voice in a dream that I think it has made a huge impact on me. There were very moving dreams. And I'm going to let the listening audience read the book and they can learn what you and John Henry were talking about in these dreams. One thing that, struck me as very interesting and there's a lot of the word poignant keeps coming up to me as thinking oh this is a poignant moment but the thing that I thought was so moving and poignant to me was how you started the book you write to John Henry you say essentially I'm writing this letter to you John Henry I'm writing this book and I'm not sure how you feel about me telling people these things about us so I wrote every word imagining that you were reading each one over my shoulder. Mm -hmm. It was and is of huge concern to me that he be okay with me having done this work. It is after all about us. It's about him. And he does not have the um, ability to tell me that he doesn't want me to do it. Um, I have told him. Over and over, I'm writing a book about us. I'm writing a book about us. I've shown him the cover. He's seen, you know, he's given it the tap. Um, he, um, I, and my editor tried over and over and over and painstakingly to make sure we didn't, um, painstakingly so to make sure that we didn't have anything in the book that would embarrass him or, um, that would make him mad or feel like it was coming from any place, but a hundred percent love and devotion and interest and concern and care. Um, so that's the first reason I began this book with a letter. The second reason was so that I could get that out. So I could say, look, you know, before you, before all you advocates come at me and tell me how I don't have the right to write this book, before um, any of you say anything about my having done this, let me just tell you that I've thought about that. 
And this is my decision. Um, again, a lot of effort was made to make sure that it was the most respectful version of events that could be told while still allowing it to be truthful and honest and not um, patronizing or uh, Pollyanna or uh, any of those things that we know life isn't. Um, I tried really hard to get it right. And so the letter that begins it is another way of me doing that. And I think that I, I could very well have messed up if I did. I did. And uh, I, I did my best. Well, for this lay reader, I thought it was a really wonderful letter. And in some sense, it was saying, John Henry, is this okay? And John Henry silently in his way saying, it's okay, mom. Mm-hmm. It's okay. Because I know him yeah. saying to you, mom, I know you're doing this because you love me. Mm-hmm. And you talk about how when you received the initial diagnosis, it changed, uh, it was life altering, you say, in, in terms of the expectations for your life and for his life. And I suppose the life you imagined for you and your child. Um, and this was a way of, in some sense, coming to the next level of expectations. How now, fine, we have this diagnosis. What, what, what are my expectations now? How will this change my thinking and relationship? And I thought you talked very interestingly about how you say you watched him closely, like it was your job to study him as if it was for a test. And you came to realize that in so doing, you were interacting with him much less and studying him more. And you didn't like that. Mm. You, you wanted to be interacting with who he was now rather than trying to change him to be something he wasn't, which I think was an important revelation. Maybe you can talk us through that a bit. Well, there's a long, complicated answer to that. I could probably leave. Um, I think that, you know, I said to a friend the other day who has a child with a traumatic brain injury, and there's some parallels with our lives. I said to her, you know, it is everything and it is nothing all at the same time. Um, That also means it means everything and it means nothing. That makes sense to me because there's so many things that I try to attach meaning to with this experience to help me, I think, through it and to help me be better at the dance of holding on and letting go all at the same time, which is anyone who's a parent has to learn Um, or live kicking and screaming and then agony because they can't do that. I think as, as a child of an alcoholic, I feel like I have to do everything myself in the first place. 
everything is my responsibility. I have to do everything. And not only do I have to do everything, I have to do it alone and not ask for help. So you can imagine when John Henry was diagnosed, I thought that I was responsible for curing him. I was responsible for finding um, a solution to this problem that had descended upon us, upon him. So I think that happens to a lot of parents, child of alcoholic or not. You know, we want to fix things for our children. When something goes wrong, not only do we feel responsible for it, but we feel like we got to fix it. So, you know, I spent a lot of years trying to say, well, what about this thing? What if we tried this? What about this diet and this therapy and this oil and this, you know, this doctor? And what about this? And, you know, all those things, which of course is normal, but what I've really figured out in our case is that autism is part of John Henry. It is not who he is, but at this point, John Henry with autism is the John Henry that I know. Now, I want him to have every opportunity that he wants to have. And that means that I have to, yes, learn how to listen to what he tells me that he's interested in, what he tells me that his abilities are and what they may be. And it also is my responsibility to go out of my way to expose him to things that he might not otherwise know, because with a typical child, they can find things out. They know things that we could never know. (laughs) With John Henry, he has a bit of a limited world um, because of his reduced attention span, because of some other behaviors that make it, I think, more difficult for him to say, I don't know, watch. Batman or something, as opposed to the good dinosaur. Um, You know, cartoons are a little bit easier for him to watch than um, movies with actual people. The human face is the hardest thing for us to look at because it holds so much complex emotion. So a cartoon is going to be easier for him to process. So it's just things like that, that I have to think about that I would not, I think, were he not a person with autism, I probably wouldn't have to think about that. So that all leads me to say, you know, if we're going to evolve as human beings, we have to increase our capacity for handling difference and for finding other ways to communicate, to be open, to be more open, more compassionate, more interested, instead of just deciding that if something doesn't fit the standard, then it has to go over to the side. You know, because our attempts at standardization are not only harmful and painful, they're not true. You're not standard. Are you? No one in my family would accuse me of that. No, I'm not. Yeah. So there is no standard. And those of us who have been taught to accept that there is, you know, spend a lot of time in pain because we feel bad because we don't meet the standard or, If we are meeting it, we're under friction and tension because we're trying to meet this standard. So I think that's just a way of me saying, you know, can we learn how to open up? Can we listen more? Can we 
can we talk about relationships like the one I have with John Henry and in which I love him so much and I just want to know everything I possibly can. So we, can I talk about our relationship and the ways that I've learned how, you know, I find I get more information when I just sit beside him than I do from, I don't know, a lot of things. A report, his performance on matching. I mean, those things tell me one thing, but I get more information about who he is and his essence when I'm just able to be still myself. So that's there's a very sort of mindfulness aspect to your evolving thinking. I, I know in the book, it seemed as if you at one point were thinking about trying to change him. You have this dialogue where you say he, he'll he never be fine. But then you say, but he's already fine. Everybody is fine. Nobody is fine. So you, you're sort of wrestling with this societal expectations pressuring you and you're saying to yourself finally enough enough with wanting to meet their expectations i have to create my own expectations and john henry and i and you and your husband and john henry have to create your own sort of presence our own own fine yeah yeah that's you know just from what I was just talking about this idea you know what is fine because there are some days I'm not fine and I'm sure there are some days you're not fine and I feel this way my son is here he is who he is whatever that is I love him and I want him that way I think you know because he has had resources and because he's been in a great school and he's had one-on-one attention, he has made a tremendous amount of progress. So I'm very grateful for that. But I've also adopted this recently. I've started just saying to myself, so what? Right? Like, I think going back to talking about about expectations, like expectations for John Henry's life, expectations for my own life. I think, you know, the sort of normal trajectory is, um, you know, your child, you raise your child, they go to school, then they go off to college or they get a job or whatever. They move out, they have relationships, they do the thing on their own. Well, if that doesn't happen in our case, If John Henry lives with me for the rest of my life, which I'm happy for him to do, well, so what? I'm going to be here anyway. So why don't I do that? I can do that just as easily as I can do something else. I might have enjoyed traveling the world. Well, John Henry could very well travel the world with me. Or what if I don't? So what? I'll be here or I'll be wherever I am and we'll be together and we'll find joy in a bird at a feeder or a flower, just like we would anywhere else in the world doing any other thing, because you can have peace in life and that can be an overarching theme. And I think that's what all of us who are trying to get better in this school that we're in 
um, are trying to do. We're just trying to end up when we die better than we were, or at least back to who we were when we came here. Mm. We're trying to survive this human being school. You know, we know that happiness in life is not created by accomplishment or acquiring or a degree hanging on the wall, whatever it is. It's found in little moments, connection with other people, beautiful, joy-filled moments that remind us that we're alive and that we are learning and that we are children of whatever higher power you have. That we're loved, that we're here, that we're okay. Because I've had to learn to go moment to moment. Am I okay right now? Yep. You say that John Henry teaches you as much as you teach him. You're a musician by training and vocation. And and you wrote that John Henry has taught you that music is in everything which I thought was a lovely, a lovely line. Well, it's true. And I think it's the essence of us. When you think about the fact that every note in the musical scale can be found in nature, there's a harmony to that. There's a way that that all happens. And when he walks outside and he looks up and he watches the leaves blow on a tree, I think, what is he hearing? What does he hear? Because his hearing is very sensitive. He wears headphones over his ears most of the time. And that has happened over the past two or three years. It's really sensitive. So he likes to have his headphones and he likes to listen to music, um, which he does through his iPad. And, and um, it's really sweet. The things that he likes, he has a really varied um, taste, which is, which is cool, but he walks outside and he stops and he looks and he listens. Sometimes he gets, you know, distracted by something and bolts toward it. <laughs> or if there's water, then we have to, you know, investigate that and try to keep him from jumping in the pond or whatever it is that he has seen. Um, but he, there's a peace that comes over him when he is outside in nature that is beautiful. We were uh, just at the beach about a week ago and um, seeing him sit in a chair and watch the ocean and be peaceful with no headphones on, Um, just taking it in and being able to be at peace was just such a gift. It was one of my favorite moments with him that I've ever had is just being able to see him see is such a lovely thing to see him here. Um, he has a, a very peaceful countenance in those moments. Mm. You have a section in the book that's called a guide to getting through. And we talked a little bit about this at the, earlier on is you said as a mom of an autistic son, there are certain things that you've come to learn. You have 18 suggestions, which we can't go through, but we've talked a little bit about it, which is 
lose your fear of embarrassment and it's okay to laugh and, and let go. But one of the things that I thought you might talk a little bit about is taking ample care of yourself mm-hmm. as part of this process. We talked a minute ago about how you are, as any mom would be, worried about the well-being of their child, and it presents all sorts of challenges to all of us with all of our children, but that it was important for you particularly to be able to take care of yourself. And you wrote her letter to yourself in the book, and I was wondering whether you might read it to us, mm. if you feel comfortable with that. What page is that? 58. Yes. Well, this is um, the last passage in a piece that is full of recountings of encounters with other people who have either been frustrated because of our noise or our messiness or our inability to, you know, use the uh, appropriate boys restroom, um, you know, um, people getting frustrated with us for um, not being typical. So I wrote notes to them, one to the neighbor who lived above us, who had banged on the floor after they had gotten frustrated because John Henry was making, no, it was our downstairs neighbor because John Henry had been jumping up and down and making noise and the neighbor banged on their ceiling and shouted at us. Could we, you know, many choice words. Um, So I wrote um, and I had been called by management over and over and over again. They were like, do you have rugs down? I'm like, yes. So anyways, this whole thing. So I ended up writing a note to the neighbor that just explained the situation taped it on their door. Um, I invited them for a cup of coffee, which they declined anyway. And then I had an encounter in the same building. This is in New York city. Um, because hi puppy, that's my dog. Um, uh, we had been swimming in, um, the pool and the building's pool. And we went in the women's locker room afterwards to change. And there was a woman in there who objected to my, I guess he was then, um, eight-year-old son being in there with me and but she wouldn't hear my explanation so that's this is a, a a note that I actually didn't deliver but did write um and then a note to my best friend and then a note to myself um which yes I'll read hold on dear Allison you almost all of the time do the best that you can you almost all of your life have done the best that you can You, a few times, have been dealt some cards that made bad hands. You, almost every time, played them the best that you knew how. You almost never are expected by anyone else to be perfect, so please give yourself a break and stop expecting perfection from yourself. If you can learn to do that, you will stop expecting so much from others, and all of this living will be a little easier. You almost always can let go a little bit more than is your nature to do. Try to relearn how tight your grip should be. Loosen your hands a little now. You every day are tougher than you think you are and more fragile than you let on. You, every time it happens, need to listen when someone tells you that you're doing a good job. Those are not hollow words. You have not ever been and are not now in a race. There is no finish line in life. 
What are you going to do when you get it all done? You will do some more. There will never be a time when you will be done. You will just have to stop one day. Remember to remember to enjoy it while you still can. No, remember to remember to remember to enjoy it while you can still think a clear thought and say a prayer of thankfulness for the life bulging with blessings that you have lived and still get to live. You on so many occasions that you are aware of and even more that you are not have been afforded masses of grace. You have no idea how close to death you have been on so very many occasions, and yet you are still here, mostly in one piece. You were still here, here to live this beautiful life, here to live up to the honor of raising this child you love so much, here to be uniquely you. Trust that it will work out okay, because at this point, don't you think it will? Try doing that the best that you can now. Screw the rest. Love, Allison. It's a great letter. I've had women say to me, I don't have a special needs child, but I need to read that every day. Well, I can tell you as a parent of two 30-something-year-old children, I have yet to learn to let go. So when I read this letter, I think there's a lot for me to learn in it, too. But there's a lot for all of us to learn in giving ourselves a little kindness and a break and accepting what is here at the moment. When I said there's a mindfulness aspect to your book, an evolution, it seemed to me, in your thinking, which is, I'm here now, I'm going to be here now, and I'm going to be in the present and stop being in the past and stop looking for the future. Of course, you look for the future in small ways all the time, but to be present at the moment is what one of the lessons that John Henry seems to have helped you learn. Yeah, and also, you know, the so what thing has really helped me put in perspective you know, how important it is to make the most out of what you have, because I do struggle with that question a lot of, should my child really be doing 40 hours a week of school? Should he be doing ABA? Should he not have, should we still be doing that? You know, I think ABA is very helpful for little kids. Um, This applied behavioral analysis, which is the leading treatment for autism for the listeners who don't know. Um, There are other uh, methodologies, but um, ABA is the main one that we're told has the most sort of positive outcome for people with autism. So that's the, that's the track that we've been on. But I question, you know, a a lot of ABA is about tamping down those behaviors that we don't want to see. So Uh, The self-stimulatory behaviors, which are thought to relieve stress or to bring comfort to a person, if we're encouraging them to not engage in those behaviors, is that for us or is that for them? Because it seems like a lot of times we're just trying to get things to look more typical rather than um, worry about what that's doing to the person that we're trying to tamp the behavior down in. Now we do have to tamp down behaviors in order to increase attention span and, um, and those things that prevent um, the person to learn, but you know, there has to be a balance. There has to be an acceptance of difference there. There has to, because look, it's like this. I remember thinking, well, what is the sadness? So 
if John Henry doesn't go to a typical school, if he doesn't go to a typical typical college and he doesn't get a typical job and he doesn't have a typical marriage and have typical children of that, oh, that's supposed to be a tragedy because all those people who have all those things are so happy. Right. Um, really? We're supposed to be encouraging him to be like the miserable people. <laughs> no, I, I just... I think that there are a billion ways to be happy. So, or to be, you know, happy, happy comes and goes. Happy is a fleeting emotion. Happy is just like everything else. So, you know, what if you just have a good solid experience and you go through the emotions that you go through and you don't live under the skies of, well, this is what makes a happy life because nobody knows what that is for someone else. You can only go about that for your own self. And, and in our case, you know, I want to make sure John Henry has a full life, that he has a community, that he ha- can do everything he wants to do. And like I said, he's a smart person. He will figure out how to say, I want to do this thing. You know, he, you know, he gravitates towards magazines that are vacation magazines because they have swimming pools in the oceans. That's what he enjoys. So that's what he wants to look at. And we know that. So we try to provide that for him. Um that's his thing. That's what he wants to do. And that's okay. I'm just, I'm just no longer taken with that notion that there's only one way because there are many, many ways. You have a chapter in the book, themes of which are acceptance and surrender. And you're talking about that a bit now, but you write What I want to surrender is the constant pursuit of the idea that he might become less of who he is and more of someone else. This is this expectations. You want to surrender. You say autism is here with us, here in him. It isn't going anywhere. I want to surrender to the constant pursuit that he could become somebody else. This is sort of what you're talking about now, yes? Yes. And that's, you know, I'm always looking for the next thing. Like, what is a treatment that might help John Henry? What is something that we might be able to try? What's going on with stem cells? What's going on with um, the chips that can read your mind? And then they, you know, but at the same time, that's a balance. You want to know and you want to know about the things that might help I want to know about things that might help John Henry express himself so that he can be ushered into what he would like so that he could, you know, Oh, you are interested in that. Okay. Well, I didn't realize that I would love to provide entree to that for you. If there are things like that, that I don't know, but there's also on the other hand, it's like, I don't want to be in constant pursuit of, well, maybe it's this thing. Well, maybe it's this thing. Maybe this will work. Maybe this, and put him through hell and us too. You know, there's a balance to be struck there. It's like, I'm fine with who he is, but if he wants more, I want to know that and be able to help him get that. And you say acceptance for me is allowing my son to be the version of himself that he is right now. Because there is only right now. 
acceptance as being here right now instead of looking ahead to the day when this will be over because it isn't going to be over. Right. And that's, there's an important lesson in that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that whole, well, I want my child back. Mm, I've already got my child. This is who my child is. Um, The baby that he was changed. And we all change. We all change every day. This was what happened to my son um, affects his life. I want his life to be the best it can be. Yes, he lives with me. Yes, I deserve to have a good life too. But I've been doing me for a long time. His dad's been doing his his dad for a long time. You know, I think we both try to um, honor John Henry and do do our best by him. And no, it's not perfect. But I think the most important thing for me um, as his mama is to trust him. Trust that we are loved taken care of, provided for, and that it will be okay. It's not going to be okay every day. So what? It's not okay for any of us every day. No, it isn't. You write about hope and how important the concept of hope is to you. You say life without hope would be unrecognizable. I can't imagine how tired I would be if I didn't have hope that my son will find his way to be the most realized self he can be. That to me was a very important tell. Yeah, it's everything. Hope is why we do everything we do. And the only way to see that that isn't true is to look at someone's life when they don't have any hope. And then you see how much we have. But I also particularly liked, Allison, you're saying, I hope that my son will find his way to be his most realized self. So again, it's this recognition that I've got to let my son be who he is and help that grow rather than try to meet some other person's desires for him or you and him. So they want him to be a little bit more quiet on the airplane. They don't want, you don't want him to pull your hair. You don't, they don't want him in the girl's bathroom when he's an eight year old boy, you know, Mm -hmm. it's sort of like, get over it. I'm trying to help my son be the most realized self he can be. And if that involves some of these things, well, I'm sorry. Well, that's the thing. It's like, um, Whatever that is, he needs, he needs a partner. He needs an advocate. That's what he's going to have. He's lucky and you're lucky because you're each advocates for one another. And as you say, you each have helped one another learn. There's a blessing in that. I think we're at close to the end of our time together. And I love hearing you read. I, I read your book and I also listened to it on audiobook. 
because I think when I listen to it, sometimes I hear emotions that I don't capture when I read. Mm-hmm. And I like to hear the emotions. And one of the most moving parts of the book for me was the very last paragraph on page 223. Maybe you can take us out with the reading of that paragraph and then any other important lessons that you want us to learn. As a community, we're all in this together. I have to be as kind and supportive of you as I can be. I don't need to be one of these persons who says, can you just please get him to, I have to say, you know, Allison, you're doing, you're doing the best you can. And I appreciate that. And look, if I'm not, I'm happy to hear it. You know, I mean, that's the thing. It's like, well, I think we do do the best we can most days, not every day. <laughs> so, right. Anyway, thank you for having me. And um, I very much enjoyed our conversation. So if you would read us out the last paragraph on 223, we will call it part one of a conversation that I hope we can continue to have. You got it. Art is a mirror. It has been my healing over and over again. I suspect it is and will be for John Henry as well. When I see him as he is, I'm strengthened by the profoundly beautiful, strong, and intrepid person who chose me to be his mama. He is happy, he is full of magic, and he is the truest piece of art I've ever had the privilege to witness. When I see him, I see that he is already whole. When I see us, I see that I am too. I see that we are. We are wholly us, and that is for me to embrace. Maybe one day this will all be less of a mystery to me, or maybe the cracks and crevices will become deeper, and I'll just continue to get better at letting them be. Either way, we're going to be okay. Either way, I pray I'll always keep listening and not only to my dreams. The book is I Dream He Talks to Me, a memoir of learning and how to listen. Allison, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at that said Zeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For that said, I'm Michael Zeldin.